You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Can open up your Bibles to two different places, if you can do that, with keep a finger in one or a ribbon in one. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 78, which I'll share why here in just a minute, and then we'll be in the book of John, like normal, in John chapter 9. Uh, but in the time that remains in our, our morning together, we wanted to accomplish two things. One is to uh, open up the word uh, here from the book of John, John chapter 9, uh, together. But we also wanted to take a few minutes at least while we're gathered together uh, to talk about something, a, a shift that we're making as a church uh, that's going to be starting in June, a shift uh, towards having one weekly worship service instead of two. And wanted to, we wanted to take a few minutes to share some of why, a little bit of what that would look like, but not to distract from the main point that we're gathering together for, of to, to worship, to hear the word of God open, to sing, pray, all those things. But we did want to take the opportunity while we're gathered together to share a little bit about it. Uh, we've tried to think of some analogies that might be helpful to, to paint a picture of why we're making a shift like this. And two that came to mind that revolve around families that I would invite you to imagine is the first one would be the idea of family pictures, which maybe makes some of you cringe, but imagine that your family is going to take pictures together, and for whatever reason, you decide to do it this way, that you have a photographer lined up, and you decide to send half of the family to the photo studio at a certain time, let's say it's like at noon, and you send half the family there, the photographer does all their stuff to get all the shots looking good and make sure everybody looks nice and they do all the, the picture taking of that half of the family then they leave and instantly right away then the other half of the family comes in they're scheduled to come in and have a sitting right after that the same room the same photographer and they sit down and take their pictures and the photographer does uh, her thing and takes all the pictures and then she photoshops them together to be a picture of a happy family together you would hear about that if somebody else was doing that thing that is odd like, why are you doing that? And then another analogy would be to think of family dinner. Imagine a family that's uh, needing to have dinner together each day, but the way that they've developed to do it, even though they have a plenty big enough table and chairs and food to go around, is that they schedule, let's say, they schedule for the ladies to come eat at a certain time. And there's all these other empty seats, but the ladies sit down and they eat at a certain time and have their food and enjoy conversation and whatnot. Then they get up and leave and go do lady things, whatever they want to do. And the guys come right after that. And they sit down in the same chairs, and there's empty seats, and they sit down and eat their meal together, the same stuff, have, have conversation, enjoy time together. You would look at that, and you would scratch your head and think, why are you doing that? Like, why are you taking a family experience that could easily be done together and separating it off into two different experiences, into two different times, even though they're very similar? And we share those to, to make an analogy and to paint a picture that could be similar in some ways to a church like ours, and there's many churches that do this, who have multiple worship services, that they have ability to worship in the same space at the same time. They have ability to do it, but for whatever reason, they've decided to split it and to have one worship service or uh, maybe they have two or three or four, but they, they split out services into separate times, even though they do the same thing. They have the same sermon, the same songs, the same prayers, 
And we've been thinking a lot over the last few years about the possibility of moving to having one worship service as a church family. This hasn't been a new thought. Um, We've had, as a church, even predating my uh, involvement in the church for many years, we've had multiple worship services, even up to three, I believe, if I understand church history correct. Uh, that we've had up to even three services on Sunday mornings in the past, but that was always out of necessity, not out of preference, not out of a desire of, hey, we want to have different types of services or we want to be split, but it was often out of necessity uh, that when there was a smaller building or rented space that literally the church could not fit in that space, and so they had to split it out into having different times. Uh, of worship, but in recent years with a bigger facility, uh, many people have been asking and dropping hints that, that they would like for us to consider having one worship service instead of two, uh, to, to have one time where we gather together to worship together on, on Sunday mornings. And we've even tried this. We've done this at different times. If you were here, like in the fall, we did this on Reformation Sunday, and we've done it on picnic Sundays, and sometimes around holidays, we've we've compressed into one worship service, and people have loved it. I've loved that. I think many of you have loved that when we all worship together as a church family, and people have enjoyed, hey, I hadn't gotten to see so-and-so in a long time, or it was nice to have uh, people closer in and around, and it was nice to sing and, and have my voice be, like, absorbed into the crowd more, things like that. There's different reasons we've liked it but we've gotten a lot of uh, appreciation for those and so we started actively talking about this possibility back in the fall Uh, we started having more intensive conversation about whether to do this and and if so how to do it started having conversations with many members in the church and and feeling out ideas and suggestions and how it impact people and tweaking even some ideas that we've had listening to feedback uh, that people have given to us and that we've had even ourselves. And we've arrived at the decision, and we're excited about this, to do this, to starting on June the 3rd, to have one worship service. And there's an insert in your bulletin. It's, like, got teal color on it that we made these that you could put up on your uh, fridge or whatever if you want to to remind you of some of the new times and things that will happen. But we wanted to paint a quick picture of what that's going to be like, and then in the weeks ahead we'll share a little bit more. Um, But what this is going to look like starting June the 3rd, that Sunday morning when we walk in, is that there's going to be at 9, there's still going to be an hour-long stretch of adult classes that we call life education classes that will be in this hallway over here still. Uh, that will still run those. They'll be a little bit shorter. They'll go from 9 to 10. And what, we, one difference is that we're not going to offer children's classes where there's instruction during that time, which I'll share more in a second why that is. But there will be child care provided. So if there's families that would like uh, to come into those classes, that we, we, we're going to provide child care for those children who come. Uh, But the main difference that we're all going to feel is that when we have this one worship service time, it's going to start at 10.15 every Sunday. So if you're used to arriving at 10.30 or 10.45 or something like that, you'll need to bump up a little bit earlier in the morning. Uh, But it'll start at 10.15, which might not change a lot for some of your schedules if you're here during this service each week. Uh, but it's going to start at 10.15, go to a max of 11.45, so we're not getting out any later uh, than we typically do. Um, but one thing that we wanted to highlight today is how, uh, the difference with children and how that's going to be oriented during the worship service. Uh, how that's going to look on June 3rd when families walk in here with kids, just to start to paint a picture for you, is if you have children or grandchildren that are two years old or below, uh, we're going to offer nurseries or child care for them throughout the whole worship service. So right when you walk in, you'll be able to drop them off uh, in their rooms and the the kids' hallway, those that are two and down. But then this is going to be a significant difference. Those who are three and up, 
we're actually going to invite to come in here and to begin the worship service with us. And we're going to try to orient the worship service where we're front-loading everything, like communion and baptisms and singing and praying as much as possible, videos, testimonies, things like that, that will come before the sermon. But as we get close to the sermon time, we're going to, the last song, we're going to give opportunity for children that are three years old up through fourth grade to be dismissed. And they'll be able to, we're going to rearrange some rooms in the kids' hallway. But those kids that are three years old up through fourth grade, we're going to have instructional time for them. The three and four-year-olds will have their own room. And then the five-year-olds up through fourth grade are going to have a teacher who's going to, in, in due time, starting in the fall even, we're going to have them teach about the very same things that we're preaching on that Sunday, but to do it in an age-appropriate way. And then they'll have an opportunity, those older kids, to break off into some groups and to pray together, talk together, do some activities together with adults that are, are caring for them and investing in them. And so this is not going to be a mandate on families to do that. It's not like we're trying to create an adult-only environment in here. But it is something that we think families would greatly benefit from and that kids would greatly benefit from uh, to be dismissed to that. Why had you turn to Psalm 78? I want to read one passage from this for you because I think it illustrates our collective responsibility as a church and any church's collective responsibility to invest in young people, uh, to, to not just see that as something that's for kid people or that's just something certain people do. But if I'm part of a church, if I'm a believer, I have a responsibility with my church family to invest in this next generation. So I'm going to read from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. I just encourage you to follow along. The psalmist wrote this. He said, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Then note the plural word here. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. We'll stop there. But why, why we wanted to read that this morning is because at this new arrangement that we're walking into starting in the summer is going to be stretching to some of us because we're going to need increasing amounts of people to be invested in the children's ministry of our church. Because if you stop and think about it, we're only going to have one worship service each week, but we're going to need many people week by week to be teachers, to be helpers, to be working in the nursery, giving care to the young people of our church. But we don't want just rock star children's ministry people to be doing that every Sunday because then they're not going to get to worship with the rest of the collective church. So we, we're going to need to have rotations. We're going to need to have people take turns in serving a week once a month or taking two weeks in a row every few months, things like that, and be investing in these doses of the children of our church. And we wanted to highlight that this is a collective responsibility we all have and an opportunity we all have because God has abundantly given child after child after child to our church. And we have a wonderful opportunity to tell them the good deeds that God has done, the works that he's done in sending Christ. And so this morning, we want to encourage every single one of you before you leave today, and I'm not exaggerating, saying all of you adults, that we'd love for you to fill one of these out. Uh, we have these at the back of the auditorium. There are these little cards that are on the tables with the black tablecloths. 
back there that would take maybe 30 seconds to fill out that would indicate ways that you could be involved in that process of helping invest in the children of our church. And I would encourage each of you to fill that out and think about ways that you could be involved in that process because we're a church family and we've been given children into our family and need to work together and have an opportunity to work together to teach, to care for, to pray with the children of our church. You don't have to be some rock star children's volunteer. You have to be a person who loves Jesus and knows, man, we have a responsibility uh, to share the good news of Christ with this next generation. So at the end of the service, I'll remind you, but we want each of you to fill one of these out and there's baskets that you could put them in in the back and then we will follow up with you to figure out as we're operating in this new routine on Sundays this uh, summer we'll communicate with you about ways that you could be involved in specific ways and schedules but I encourage you to fill it out uh, before you go and as a person who has three kids within our church I've just personally selfishly want as many of you as possible to be invested in caring for my kids and teaching them because I love you all and I want you to love them and them to love you and all of us to love Jesus together and it's an opportunity to do that so that is what we wanted to share and we'll share more uh, in coming Sundays much smaller doses but about this one service shift and ideas of how to get ready for it uh, as we come in to June 3rd. But you can turn, if you still have your finger in there, I know it's been a while, to John chapter 9. We want to open up God's word as we continue our series we're calling Love That Gives uh, through the gospel of John. And we're going to be in the first seven verses of John chapter 9. And as I was reading this story, and you'll see why uh, as we read it here in a minute, this week an experience came to mind, a really sad experience that I had uh, when I had worked at a church in Ohio before I came to minister here. I was a youth and children's pastor at a church outside Dayton, Ohio, and there was a uh, family that I got to spend extra amounts of time with uh, that had, they had been going through the ringer for a couple years. They'd had a lot of really hard things happen to them, the hardest of which was that one of their sons had, when he was young, he had had, I don't even remember what the name of it is, but he had had something happen to him where his body had greatly overheated. And it had damaged his brain. Uh, and they thought he was going to die, but he lived and the Lord sustained his life. But his brain was permanently damaged unless the Lord intervened in miraculous ways, which he still hasn't to this day. But he would have a lot of seizures. He'd have a lot of complications. would have to be in and out of the hospital all the time. So I spent a lot of time there with them. And I remember having a conversation with one of the other leaders in our church that I wish I would have had the courage to just challenge him on but I had a conversation with him about this family and feeling so bad for them and and just the compassion that I have for them and wanted to see the Lord care for them and this man in talking to him he told me I don't remember the exact words but it's lodged in my mind the, the generalities he said that he thought that that son's suffering and that all these things that were happening to this family was because of sins of their father he said, and the sin was that, that how he understood it was that this father had supposedly been called into the ministry when he was a young adult and had chosen to not do that and go into the Air Force instead. And he said that he, this guy I was talking to said he thought that disobedience, what he perceived as disobedience of that man was what was causing these problems in his family. And I remember just like, on the inside, wanted to punch the guy and wanted to cry at the same time. Like, read this story that we're about to read and then tell me that same thing. Like, how, could you, how can you think this and connect these dots of suffering that's come into this boy's life and the sins of his dad? Like, how, how do you know that? How do you connect those dots? You cannot do that. 
This is a question, this is an assumption even that's been in human beings for a very long time. When we see suffering in another person or see it in ourselves, we are tempted to connect dots to the cause of it and to say, I think I can know that there's sin involved here, that there's something somebody has done, either this person or somebody close to them, uh, that is causing this suffering. And this story today, we're going to just read the first seven verses of it, but should blow that assumption out of the water, should wipe it out of our minds Forever. And I, I think there's much we can learn even through these seven verses about suffering, about uh, what the causes are and are not of suffering. And so I want to read this for you, the first seven verses of John 9, just to set the context of it. If you look back at the end of John chapter 8, uh, Jesus had just had people, that, right, this is right after the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's been saying these things about himself and even his divinity. He just had people pick up stones to throw at him and to try to kill him. But he hid himself and went out of the temple. That's what just happened. We don't know exactly how long after this, but it doesn't seem like very long after that this happens, what we're about to read. So it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is a, a miracle, no doubt, that God took this man who had not seen, didn't, would probably not have even known what sight was if you tried to describe it to him. And by the end of these seven verses, that man has come back to Jesus and can see. Uh, so there's this miraculous thing that Jesus does, and I think Jesus knew he was going to do. But before he does that, He stops, and as he hears his disciples ask this question, he knows the assumption behind it. He's not jumping right to the miracle. He wants to correct their wrong assumption first. He wants them to know some truths, and I think he wants us to know some truths about suffering, what it is and what it isn't, uh, before he goes and heals this man. And so I think the main point, the way I would articulate it from this part of the text that I want us to walk away with this morning is this, is to make sure that your understanding of suffering comes from God's word, not from your own intuition. Make sure that your understanding of suffering comes from God's word, not from your own intuition. And so what happens here in this story, it's a Sabbath day we find out later. We'll go through the rest of the story next Sunday. It's a Sabbath day. Surprise, surprise, Jesus liked to do that and to stir things up. Uh, But there's this man who'd been blind from birth, Uh, Somehow his disciples know that. I don't know how they knew that. Um, But he's also a beggar, we find out later in this story. And so uh, Jesus passes by this man and he sees him. And his disciples ask him this question. And you can see their wheels turn in their mind as they ask it. They say, whose sin, or whose sin, was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And so the assumption in their mind is, Jesus, somebody obviously sinned. Because this guy has suffering that's come to him. He has a disability that's been given to him. So somebody sinned, Jesus. Who is it? Who, whose was it that caused this, that brought it about? 
And Jesus answers them very clearly in verse 3, and this is what we'll focus on in the time that remains. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he answers them very clearly, very directly. And he goes on to say a few things about how we're called to do the works of God, um, that, that he's the light of the world. And then he does this miracle. After teaching them briefly, he performs this miracle. I think it's kind of strange, but Jesus knows infinitely more than me. So he, what he does is he spits on the ground, and he, takes, he makes mud, enough spit to make it into mud. And he takes that mud and he anoints, it says anoints his eyes. He covers his eyes at least a bit with that mud. And then in another thing that seems weird, he sends him away. He makes him go to this pool that would have been there inside Jerusalem and says, go there and wash. And the guy does. And when he comes back, he can see. John just writes it like matter of fact, like it's no big deal. But the guy who's never seen comes back, sees. But I, I want us to focus on verse 3, and then we'll have time to, to elaborate on the rest of the story next Sunday. Because in verse 3, I think we see some important things about suffering, about what it is not, and about what it is. Jesus starts with what it's not, and then he says what it is. And the, the way I'd summarize the first statement here is uh, what he's trying to teach is that suffering is not always to discipline. Suffering is not always to discipline or to punish. Uh, he starts this verse by saying, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. They're asking him, why has this guy been born blind? What, who caused it? Who brought it about? Like, who's the one behind this that God is, is trying to punish or to teach? And Jesus says, nobody. And what he's communicating in that, he's correcting this assumption that there has to be somebody who's at fault. There has to be somebody who's sinned. God's looking down and seeing. Maybe it's some secret thing. But God is looking down and seeing. Somebody's sinned, and he's punishing. He's, he's disciplining. And Jesus says, no, that is not what is happening. I know you assume that. That is not what is taking place. And so there are times, don't get me wrong, there are times where we endure suffering in our lives that we can connect the dots of cause and effect. You, you can have bad things come into your life and very clearly know this thing I did or this thing this person did is what brought that about. If you, uh, if, let's say you are an absolute jerk at work and you get fired, you can connect that dot, okay? Like that, that suffering that came to you is not some mysterious, whoa, like what happened here? You can connect that dot. Or uh, if you have abused alcohol for years, and you start to develop problems with your liver, you can connect those dots of, of cause and effect, of, of things that decisions that you made that are, are resulting in things in your body. If you commit certain crimes or, or do certain wrong things even at school and, and punishment comes to you, you can connect those dots. You know, I did this, this is the consequence, this is the hard thing I have to deal with now. But Jesus is saying very clearly that is not always the case when we just evaluate suffering in general. When hard things come into our life, you cannot always say there's a sin that is causing this, that there's something wrong I'm doing or that one of my loved ones is doing that is bringing this about. Jesus did not believe in karma, and we should not either. Like this idea that if I do certain things, bad things are going to come into my life. That, that is not a biblical view of suffering. Jesus wants to, to blow that idea out of the water. This is important for us as we think about other people's suffering and as we think about our own suffering. Because there's this temptation that we face that even people, as we read the rest of this story next week, the temptation they faced, like if you look down at verse 34, 
there's this temptation that is faced when we see people suffering, a temptation to assume and to think, man, they must be awful. Or like, what are they doing in secret that maybe people don't know about that God's trying to like get them for? He's trying to, to expose in their life. If you look down at verse 34, these people thought of this man. They say, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? Like, that's their mentality they had as they looked at this guy who had suffering in his life. It's like, there is something deeply wrong with you. Not just your sight, but there's some sin in your life that, that disqualifies you from being able to invest in other people. And they would look down their nose at people who are suffering. And we can be tempted to do the same thing. Maybe not in the same ways, but there can be times that wheels turn in our head when we see people going through hardship that we start to at least be tempted to assume certain things about them or to wonder certain things about what might be secret things going on in their life or what really is happening um, behind closed doors. We need to be careful of that and to be cautious about that and not assume that we always know the cause and effect of people's suffering. We need to not look down our nose at people who are going through hardship thinking that there must be some secret thing that they're dealing with. But look at them with compassion. Look at them as Jesus did with with love and with mercy and tenderness wanting to help them. So it helps us, this reality and what Jesus is teaching helps us in how we view other people's suffering. But it also helps us in how we view our own suffering. There are times in our life, and if you're anything like me, maybe you face temptation where difficult things come into our life. Hard things happen to us. We get sick or we have disease or difficult relational things happen. There's all these heavy things that come upon us. And our minds, even if we know it's not right, can go to places where we start to wonder, am I doing something wrong? Like, is God, are you upset with me? Like, is there something that I've done or something that I'm doing that is why you're bringing this onto me or why you're bringing this onto my family? And our minds can just go wild because we want to figure it out if it is. We want to know, well, I'm doing this wrong, and that's why this bad stuff is coming to me. If I could just fix it, if I could just learn my lesson, then surely this suffering will go away. This, this disability or this hardship will be removed if I can just figure this out and get better. And God would want us to be relieved of that burden, of that that weight that we can carry sometimes of false guilt, that this is my fault, that this is something that I'm doing, something that I am bringing about in my life or my loved one's lives. The Lord would want to correct that and say, no, like it is not that you sinned that has brought this about. There's something else I'm trying to do. There's something else that I'm seeking to put on display here. And so this truth that Jesus teaches here helps us to view other people's suffering the right way, but it helps us to view our own suffering the right way. But I also would say this before we move to the second half of that verse. that This verse also, I think, should help us view, I would call it like our peace or our calm the right way too, our lack of suffering the right way. Because the flip side of this assumption that people make of, well, if you're doing bad things and suffering comes to you, the flip side of that is that, if you have blessing and stuff's going well and there's calm and you're, you're wealthy and you have all this health and you have a lot of friends and you have nice stuff, and that, that, that you must be doing something right. Like God is looking at you and he's pleased with you and he's blessing you and he's giving you all this abundance. And that is dead wrong. But we can start to buy into this lie to think that with my life is relatively free of suffering, that the Lord is just granting me all this blessing because I'm being so obedient. And we can read the blessings in our life as God's approval of us when that's not the case. 
And so Jesus is wanting us to view suffering the right way. He's wanting us to view peace even and calm the right way, I think, and to see, look, the things that come into your life aren't always just cause and effect of you do this bad thing, so suffering comes. You do this good thing, blessing comes. It's not that simple. And Jesus wants to to blow that out of our minds and help us see suffering is not always to discipline. But the second half of what he says in verse 3 is not just what suffering isn't, but what it is. Like what it is brought to us for. What God's purposes actually are. And so how he finishes that sentence, he says, hey, it is not that this man sins or his parents that's brought him to be blind. And he doesn't stop there, does he? He he gives us the reason this man was born blind. And he says it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. That is quite a statement. So this man was born blind. had been blind for decades probably by this time. That that disability, that suffering that God had brought into his life and into his family's life was that the works of God might be displayed in him. So if suffering is not always to discipline, I think we see from this that suffering is always to display something. It's to show God's works. That's what Jesus says. The suffering that was brought into this man's life and that's brought into the lives of God's people is to display the works of God. And we don't think of suffering that way typically. We think of it as something just purely to avoid, something that there can be no good in. But Jesus says, at least of this man, I think by extension us as his people, that suffering is to display the works of God. Suffering that comes into your life that has come into your life, that's in your life now, that will come into your life, is not just random. It is not just stuff that just kind of happens and God just sort of has set this world spinning and lets bad stuff happen to you. God knows what difficult things are going to take place in your life. He's orchestrated those things to come. He allows them to come, but he's not doing it just passively. He has purposes in what he's doing. He has reasons that he's bringing those things, that he's allowing those things into your life as hard as that is for us to imagine. And the easy thing to think about with this story in particular, if Jesus says, hey, the reason this guy was born blind is so that the works of God could be displayed, we we read that he's about to do this miracle, right? That he's about to give him his sight back. The easiest, simplest way to read this text would be to think, well, the work of God that's about to be put on display is healing. It's, It's giving him sight. He was born blind and lived all this time for whatever many years, right for this moment. That's about to happen. So God's power could be put on display uh, so he could show people how strong he is and can heal anything. But I would note for you, and most of your English translations will show this, Jesus said that he was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. there's There's bigger purposes for God bringing suffering in our life than just to heal it. That's definitely something that God can do. Sometimes he brings suffering into our life to heal it and to put his power on display and his ability to remove those things and to get rid of them. But there's broader purposes that God has for our suffering. There's bigger purposes, deeper purposes that God has than just that. I was trying to think of a few ways that in our lives and maybe even in this man's life that God can put his works on display in us as we go through suffering. And a few that came to mind, I think you do see it embodied in this man, is one of the things that God does through suffering, one of the works that he does through suffering in our lives 
is preparing our hearts to believe. That it is, when we go through life, and I was like this, where we have a relatively easy life, and we have calm, and we have peace, and we have no real boat-rocking things, and no sickness, and all my grandparents are still alive, and I'm 34. Like, I've, I've had a relatively easy life until I was into adulthood, and God slowly started to introduce more sufferings to me and my family. But when we have comfort and ease, and we have health, and we have all the things that we think that we need, it can deceive us into just ignoring God. And just being oblivious to him, just walking through this life, walking even into the grave someday, not with any mind whatsoever to the eternity, to our creator, to our problem of sin, our need for forgiveness. But there is something about suffering that is like it breaks up the hard ground. Like I got a tiller I need to use in my little garden at home that, that I need to break up the ground to be able to put seeds in. And suffering is like that sometimes for us. That we have hard hearts that will not believe, but God intentionally puts something into our life to dig up that hardness and to, to break it and make it ready for the Lord to bring the good news of Jesus and to help us see our need for him, to see that we are small, that we're broken, that we're weak, that we are sinful. Like God brings suffering into our lives at times. Perhaps that's why he has suffering in your life right now and is not removing it. Because you're not yet to believe in the Lord, and he wants to continue to slowly show you that you need him, that you need forgiveness, that you need hope beyond just this life, beyond just the removal of the suffering that you're going through. So one work that can come, one work of God that can be displayed is preparing hearts to believe. One obvious one, which we already talked about, is a work God can do through suffering is healing. That is sometimes what the work that God is doing and why he allows suffering into our lives is so that he could heal it and people could see that and be in wonder and be in awe and have hope and confidence that God exists and that he's powerful and that he's at work among his people. Jesus healed this man of his sight. He didn't just teach about suffering and just let it be some idea in their heads. He, he did, and he wanted them to think the right way about it. But then he gave this man his sight back. He healed him of it. And the same Jesus who spat on that ground and rubbed that guy's eyes is on the throne of heaven right now. And when we pray to him, he has the same power to heal blindness, to heal sickness, to heal relationships that are broken. And sometimes he allows suffering so that we can see the healing. And so other people can see it and marvel at it in ways that they wouldn't if he had just let it stay peaceful, if he had just let it stay easy, if he had just let it stay calm. Many of you know that uh, my son had to go to the hospital this week. Uh, we had to take him to the emergency room. He had, his, I cry a lot when I talk about my kids, but his, he's one, and his blood sugar just crashed. Uh, on Wednesday morning this week, he was not really responsive, and we had to take him to the emergency room, and by God's grace, uh, he is fine as of now. But I tell you what, like, I prayed a lot more uh, those couple of days than I had in a long time, and many of you did, uh, and I hugged him tighter, and I'm more appreciative of him uh, after God has, has healed him of it for now and, and made his body well again. Uh, I, I grew in my confidence in the Lord and my nearness to him, my hope in him by seeing him care for my son. In ways that if this week had just gone normal, I would have just kept walking through it and been oblivious and, and more detached and less appreciative. But God allowed that suffering, even short, to come into my son's life so that I think that he could heal it and remind us of his power and of his care for us. And that's one of the works of God that he does in bringing suffering is to heal. 
But God does not always heal us. Like there is suffering that he has brought into many of your lives that I've seen you walk through for a long time and still walk through. There are times that he doesn't just fix things and heal things. And one of the ways that God's works can be put on display is by sustaining you through suffering. By carrying you through it. By by giving you hope and, and flickers of faith that last even as hardship comes and waves crash upon you and things keep coming at you. There is something about a person in that state that continues to trust the Lord that continues to obey him, that continues to follow after him, even as these waves crash against him, there's something about that that speaks volumes to people. Whether it's to fellow Christians or to people who are not believers who look at your life and wonder, what are you doing? Why would you trust this God that you say uh, is all-powerful and loves you but is bringing this into your life? Like, why would you do that? And our obedience, our trust in the middle of suffering, even in suffering that lasts a long time, maybe even till death itself, our trust and hope points people to our Savior in ways that if God just fixed that, if God just removed it when it happened, they may remember him for that moment and be in wonder for that moment. But if they see for months or years, they see me with a sustained faith, a sustained hope in the Lord, that's going to speak to them over and over and over and over again that Jesus is real. He is changing this person. He is empowering them to endure this stuff when I would have given up long ago. I read an article uh, that one man wrote who uh, has been through much suffering in his life, and he said it this way. He said that our pain gives us a platform question becomes then what am i saying to the world in the midst of my pain people will listen to you if they see you suffering if they see you enduring suffering they will listen to you and they can hear either in your voice a hopelessness and a rejection of walking away from god or they can sense you drawing near to him and saying i don't understand this but i trust him and i love his son jesus and that will speak volumes Christian understanding of suffering, there's much that could be said, but Christian understanding of suffering is grounded in the reality of the cross and of the resurrection. Because when we remember that Jesus died upon the cross for our sins, when we look at the cross and and we ask the question, whose sin was it that caused this man to die, caused this man to suffer, we can connect those dots when we look at the cross. And it wasn't his sin, it was ours. Our sins were placed upon him, and every ounce, every bit of God's anger, of his judgment, his punishment for our sins was put down on Jesus on that cross. And when we remember that, that ought to inform how we suffer now. And when we have hard things come into our life, we don't have to fear that it's God's anger, that it's God's judgment, that it's God's discipline on us because he loves us. He has forgiven us of those sins. He's already poured all of that out on his son Jesus. And so the cross helps us remember that our sufferings as his people aren't punishment. They, they, they may be to teach us, they may be to grow us, but they are not his punishment. And so the cross teaches us how to suffer, but the resurrection teaches us how to suffer well too. It teaches us that suffering is temporary. Because Jesus, after he died, was raised from the dead. And someday he will return. And someday he will create his kingdom and his new earth where there will be no more death. Where there will be no more hospital visits. There will be no more uh, friends that reject us. There will be no more broken bodies. There will be none of that. And we can have hope that even if God calls me to suffer for a long span of time, that someday that suffering will end. 
Because Christ has been raised from the dead and someday he will raise me up. And that can sustain us. That can encourage us in the midst of long suffering. So the cross and the resurrection have much to teach us about suffering and suffering well. Believing the truth about the suffering that God invites and, and allows into us.